When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Benjamin Hall, and I'm searching for heroes. Well, welcome back to the podcast, and thank you again for listening. Uh, Our guest today is different from our previous guest, and that is because he is an expert in resilience. Uh, Not just an expert, he is one of the world leaders in studying resilience, Uh, and so it's a pleasure to have him on today. He's Name is Professor George Bonanno, and he has really changed the way in which we look at resilience over the last few years. What Professor Bonanno, uh, he's a professor of clinical psychology at the moment at Columbia University, and what he did was he said, we must move away from the idea that after something traumatic or dreadful, that we must prepare for PTSD. Instead, he switched the focus and he said, the vast majority of people in this world are resilient, that resilience is all around us. And we should focus on on that and how we can attain that rather than just preparing for the worst that may happen. Um, he has spent the last 30 years uh, studying resilience, specifically focused on bereavement and trauma. Uh, but what's really interesting about him is not just the studies that he's done and his area of expertise, but his own personal life as well. Uh, when he was very young, he left home, he traveled around the US, he, he left a difficult household himself. And those eight years really defined who he was and led him on the search for resilience. So speaking to him today is a real honor because he's got two sides, the study of resilience, as well as a personal story that sort of led him to where he is today. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him on today. He is the author of an incredible book as well called The End of Trauma, and he lays out his all of his thesis in that. So thank you again for listening. Here's our guest. You know, George, the one thing I've been trying to do in this podcast is try and convey to people that resilience is in everybody. And so many people have looked at me and I, after the attack and they said, goodness, where did you find that resilience? And I honestly think that that is in absolutely everyone. And your book, The End of Trauma, really goes into that. In fact, it shakes up exactly how resilience was seen in the past. And I just wonder if you could start off by explaining why the system was wrong and how you have turned that on its head. Well, um, I think the, the the dominating narrative now really or has been for some time is that these horrible things, these difficult things, things that we consider potential traumas, that these events cause lasting psychological damage in just about everybody. That's been the ongoing narrative. And the, the research, the evidence, the actual facts have have differed from that for a long time. I mean, we know that most people do not have PTSD after the, the worst events that happen, after the, the difficult events. But my research for the last 30 years has basically shown that the majority of people actually cope quite well. You know, nobody wants these things to happen, as you well know. And, you know, these these events are not free of any cost. They do. They are upsetting. They're disturbing. But we are able to move on and sometimes much more quickly than we imagined. And that's the majority of people. And that's what the, the research unequivocally shows this. And I think you, you mentioned a really interesting story in your book um, 
about following 9-11 and how thousands of mental health professionals got ready for what they thought was going to be this avalanche of people who would have serious oh. trauma. But but that never really happened. Can you explain? Yeah, that no. And I, I refer to that as the resilience blind spot. And interestingly, as as far back as we can go when we have recorded history, we seem to repeat that same uh, phenomenon. We did it during COVID as well, where after 9-11, there were pro prognostications, you know, this is going to be an unprecedented sort of mass trauma that's going to go far beyond the resources we have to cope. The same thing happened in London uh, back in World War II during the Blitzkrieg. There's, there's good historical evidence that there were, you know, assumptions that all the beds would be overflowing with mental health problems. And of course, that didn't happen. The Londoners, you know, pulled together really well. And I found quotes even reading about Churchill recently uh, from London where people were saying, you know, I'm really surprised at how resilient we are. This is really encouraging to me that we can do this. Uh, we saw the same thing after COVID as well. Um, and I was on a few panels, international panels, you know, these kind of things that happened during COVID where I was on a doing a, a presentation to an unseen international audience. I have no idea how many people, thousands, I believe. And everybody else on these panels were saying things like, we don't have the mental health resources to cope with this. It's going to overwhelm the system. And um, of course, that didn't happen. We coped quite well. You know, we're, it's, we're not free of some casualties because things can be disturbing. But for the most part, we, meaning the world, coped quite well. I wonder if you think there is a, a growing problem in society, therefore, whereby how often do you hear someone says, oh, I, I went to see a shrink because I was having a tough time today or like, you know, work wasn't going well or uh, are people just normalizing trauma in their lives. So everyone starts to think trauma is normal after you've had a bad experience. And is that perhaps taking resilience away from from society? Um, I think I think it's a, it's a dangerous trend for absolutely. And I think it does undermine this sort of societal resilience. I do. Um, it, it has a number of negative consequences. One being that there, some people are genuinely traumatized, and that's a serious problem. And those people are now not distinguished from all the other people in the world. There's a, there are many myths going around about hidden traumas and how we carry traumas hidden, you know, in us somewhere from our past. And I think the world or many people have latched onto this as a kind of a, I hate to put it this way, but as a kind of an excuse for excuse, whatever yeah. problems they're having. You know, I mean, we, we all, you know, the world is difficult. The world is demanding. We're inundated with information all the time now about this. And I think that, you know, it can be disturbing. And when we, when we're not doing well, or when we think we're not doing well, it's it seems to be that it's it's easier to have an explanation that's beyond your control, which is, I think, how the explanation goes. But, you know, it's not even the, going to mental health professionals anymore. It's really just the Internet itself. People self-diagnose on various social media. And we've famously heard about the therapizing that goes on on TikTok. And I think that's particularly um Curious, but also particularly worrisome because of the, the amount of misinformation that's floating around. So then, do you think perhaps that if if we would agree, well, first of all, would you agree that there is a the resilience is diminishing, that there is less resilience in society overall? Um, I don't know. 
I don't think we have the evidence to say that. Um, I don't know if it is, uh, if it is actually. Um, I think it's a worrisome trend. I don't think it necessarily, I haven't, you know, this is, this is a tricky question, Benjamin, and I don't know if I have enough of a, I've thought about it enough to answer it with with intelligence, but I think that it has it's having some consequences. Perhaps not diminishing resilience, but it's causing a lot of other secondary problems. People not doing the things they might be doing because they think that they're too weak or too fragile to do them. You know, you you see you hear a lot of um, again. I hate to use these phrases because it sounds judgmental, but you hear a lot of excuses. You know, and I, you know, I, I teach in a large university and there are things now that, that people are, are um, uh, nervous about being taught because it might harm them. And we've even seen it in some scientific journals. One of the more prominent scientific journals recently said it will consider, to, to great uproar in the scientific community, it will consider publishing articles based on both on their scientific merit, which used to be the only criteria, and that the criteria that the, the information in the article does not harm anybody um, with the idea that it might be disturbing to people. Um, and then you the start cutting yourself be- off. And once you start cutting yourself off from new experiences and new learning, good or bad, you you stop being able to be flexible. And then would you say that it's that flexibility that allows people, gives people resilience? Uh, oh, absolutely. The, the, the flexibility is, um, is what, my, what my work and what the work of others has come to recently, that we are finding that, that resilience, you know, people have strengths and characteristics and many other things that, that may seem to be what makes them resilient. But the fact that so many people are resilient, the, the, the majority, it means that it's going to be multiply determined. There's many factors that, that are, that are going to go into whether or not somebody's resilient. And it seems that the, what we've come to based on the science is that um, it, whatever we have in our toolbox, whatever we have as people, what, what happens when we're confronted with something super, really aversive, something highly aversive, is that we have to embrace that situation and we have to deal with that situation and we have to be flexible. We have to adapt to it. We have to, to uh, determine what the challenge actually is and then meet that challenge and it means really adapting ourselves modifying ourselves confronting the whatever feelings and reactions we have and moving forward and that that that's a skill and humans are quite able to do this but it does require that we actually say okay this is disturbing and i can get through this so what do i need to do to get through this it requires so that kind of thinking. if you were talking to someone who had gone through something difficult some trauma then would your advice and what you've just said be don't focus on the event that just happened focus on the challenges to get through it step by step and if you take your focus away how horrible something was to how you can move forward is that where you yeah would that's say part resilience? of it yeah well the, the the flexibility idea you know because i research it because i'm a scientist we've of course broken it up in all kinds of pieces and made it very complicated which is what we do but 
it's basically there are two two basic parts. One of them I call the flexibility mindset. And we we and most people we've shown have this mindset, but it's the idea that and you described it nicely. Well, one of the pieces we call threat versus challenge. We can focus on something bad that happens to us, and we need to do that. We need to experience stress in order to control stress, in order to to respond to stress. So there's there's inevitably some angst and stress that comes with bad things that happen to us. But then we can we can either stay focused on stress and on the threat, and that becomes maladaptive. If we keep thinking this is really bad. Oh, this is so bad. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's still happening. Oh, this is the worst. This has ruined my life. That becomes maladaptive quickly. And what is adaptive, what seems to be what makes people, moves people toward resilience is when they say, okay, I didn't want this to happen. This is, this is not great. But what do I need to do to get past this? What's happening? What's the challenge here exactly? What's my task? What can I do? And once we start doing that, then we realize the tools we have, we, we get a better sense of what the challenges we have, and we start thinking about the tools we have. And we have tools. We, we are able to do this. You, you just said when one moves towards resilience. And it sort of raises the question, again, are you born with resilience? Do you yeah. learn <clears throat> resilience? Um, yeah. do, do, even in life, do you just go through periods where you are resilient and you aren't resilient? Like how, how do you yeah. track resilience through someone's yeah. life? So, so I, mean, I, I do this in my research by just, as you literally said, tracking people. We follow people over time and we look at how the different patterns, you know, how people respond to things. Um, we are born with the tools or the capacity to be resilient. We're not born resilient. And we are. I, I like to say, actually, is that just are, an, sorry? Is that just animal nature? Like, is that just the, going back yes. millions of years? Like, we yeah, are. Well, we that's have, how we're built. Yeah, Benjamin, we have the we have the the largest number of cortical neurons in the animal kingdom. We are the we have the longest period of development in the, in the animal kingdom, and we are we are. This is called. Um, uh, altricial. This this is an evolutionary strategy that some creatures use, and we humans are the most attritial. If I don't know if I'm if I'm even using that correctly, it's a Latin term, but um, we are born helpless, as we all know, and we have this long period of development because our brains have developed ultimately so many cortical neurons, and we have such. This gives us enormous flexibility. This gives us enormous adaptability adaptability this is the reason why we are the humans we are on earth we are we are humans that have built for better or for worse this this gigantic civilization and we continue to to do these things because we are so adaptable so we're born uh, we're born with the capacity to to develop as adaptive creatures um so what goes we, wrong so so why do people lose that if well, ability to be totally resilient and we have it in us is it society is it a commute like, like why is yeah. that being torn apart no this is a this is a wonderful question why, why some people are not say so adaptable and it has to do with many factors we're still of course always trying to learn more about this it has to do with to some extent with life experiences so some people who have um really prolonged life life adversity um, sometimes people then their 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 sort of system gets their stress uh, capacity, their the the tools they have for dealing with stress, the 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 body brain mind tools um, become 
uh, calibrated toward the world that's just, uh, you know, except, exceptionally stressful. And so then they become hyper-reactive to stress. Sometimes people become uh, hypo-reactive, less reactive to stress. And that be, can be sort of uh, registered in what's called epigenetics, the way genes are expressed. That can happen. Um, people are sometimes born into such um, uh, caustic or impoverished environments, they don't have the tools. You know, we know, for example, that um, kids born into poverty tend to have uh, less cortical thickness already at one year, age, one year of age, so they're already at a deficit. So there are reality is there are things like that that do happen. The majority of people um, get through fine, and that's the point I like to make. Some, for some people, there are deficits, but the majority of people get through with these tools intact, they may not actually even realize they have these tools, but we have this enormous capacity. And that is clearly what we've seen now in the majority. Yeah, and which you lay out in your book, The End of Trauma, as well. More of our conversation right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You talk about when you're young and difficult scenarios. And I wonder then if resilience is perhaps comes also from community uh, and like whether or not it is by being too, I was going to say selfish, by not thinking of others, that trauma becomes overbearing. Whereas in you, if you are in a community, you can share that with other people or you're thinking about how other people will respond to your trauma. Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but you know, we are by, by, by design, humans are enormously cooperative and cooperative doesn't necessarily mean loving. It means we just, we do everything in concert with one another. We function in relation to each other extremely well. Look at, we live in cities. You, you are in London. You need enormous amounts of cooperation for London to exist. Right. And so we do that. So we're wired with other people and the the absence of community, the absence of caregiving can cause problems in the way we develop. Um, but we, we do also rely on our community. We rely on other people. It's one of the sets of tools we have, though. And I like to think of this, as, and I think the research bears this out also, that our, our reliance on other people um, is a great resilience tool. It's a great tool to get through adversity, but it's not always exactly what we need. It again depends on the situation. Some situations or some moments or some um, aspects of a situation at some points in time, we need to do things alone and we need to focus on how we can deal with it independently. And then in many other times, we rely on other people. So community kind of comes and goes as a tool that we use depending on the exact context we're in. Hmm. Um, I wonder if I could ask you a, sort of a personal question, to be honest. I mean, because you know, you, sure. you write about how how you eventually started researching resilience and got into well, you know your field, um, and it comes down as you've written that you know at the age of seventeen you left home, you went traveling for ten years, you did a whole yeah. variety of different different jobs, and you went and experienced the world. And you didn't quite know exactly which direction you wanted to take, and I wonder if those experiences gave not just you but perhaps 
being open to the world and seeing new things and leaving your you know your one community and seeing other things if that in itself can breed strength or resilience as well um this is a wonderful question and i've thought about this many times so it personally i left home when i was 17 um to some extent to seek adventure but to some extent because uh, factors i wish hadn't happened you know i was kind of in a sense had to leave it was not a very good situation i was in can i can i ask what those were um there was a lot of physical abuse um and um the context didn't the context in which i was growing up felt um was not um working for me um i don't want to get into too many details um uh, mostly because I don't want to unnecessarily um, uh, bring other people into this, you know, that, um, but it, it was not a good, it was not a healthy environment for, environment for me. And then uh, one of the ways I responded to that was I got lost in drugs when I was a young man also. And I just left, I decided to, to just leave. And, and this is always something, and I, I've puzzled about this my life, I don't have an answer to it is that I always felt I would travel and go have adventures and I remember when I was maybe 10 years old, I was up in the middle of the night looking out the window and I thought to myself, I'm going to be sleeping in fields someday without without a home if I'm traveling and I'll need to learn how to sleep on hard surfaces. So I began to sleep without pillows and things like that. Why I did that, I have no idea. I just had this idea, right? But I ended up sleeping in fields then years later. Isn't um, that a sense of resilience? Like, isn't that... That idea, A, realizing that the situation isn't good and breaking from it, saying, I'm off, finding that strength to go and do that, and then think ahead to what you would have to face in the future. I mean, you were, despite, you know, the difficulties you just described at home, there was a resilience there that just came out. Yeah, see, so I think of that as flexibility. And this is the distinction I make. Flexibility is the process that we engage in that it, that allows us to be resilient. We have to be resilient to something. So we, in the abstract, we are not resilient. We are flexible, perhaps, that will allow us to be resilient when something happens. These are, you know, definitional terms, but it's how I think about it. But flexibility is more something you can get your, your you can sink your mind into because it's a process that we can actually measure. We can, you know, we can figure it out. We can understand it. We can teach it. We can learn it. So for me, the flexibility was operant at that age. And I, you know, I'm not worried, no, not sure where it came from, but I left home and I went traveling and almost immediately to get back to your question about community, almost immediately I found a broader community that was enormously reassuring to me. Many people, you know, this was in the seventies. I don't mean to date myself, but I'm dating myself here. Um, in the seventies, you could still hitchhike. And I hitchhiked around the United States. I even got into boxcars on trains, you know, road and the rails in the boxcars, which was filthy, actually, but um, wasn't so nice. But um, in those days, I immediately found communities of people that were open and, 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 and I became part of. And that, to me, was enormously important. Um, so I think that's one piece of it, very much so. Um, and those and years... Were- and and I've I've seen some photos of your of your long hair uh, hitchhiking as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but those years they led you to start 
studying and researching resilience. And yeah. I just wonder, wonder why, what it was that you found out there. You said community, you said other things, but you specifically wanted to research resilience. Yeah, I think there was some, there, there's obviously some luck in all this, some serendipity. I didn't think about it at the time, of course, and I had no plans of even ever going to university. You know, back in those days, I was I didn't attend what we call college in the United States of the first four years. I didn't attend college until I was 26. And to my surprise, I had some talent for it and could write and could do research. And before I knew it, I was getting a Ph.D. from Yale. And then I'm a, you know, now I'm a professor at Columbia before none of that was planned. However, what I think those early experiences did was they showed me what I could find. And so when I began to study trauma and bereavement, those are the first things I studied. And that was an accident as well. That just, there was a chance to do that kind of research, so I took that opportunity. But because of my own life experiences, I think without even fully realizing it, I was able to look for resilience in those data. And that's really one of the first things I did, one of the, one of the ways I contributed to this scientific world um, the world of, of knowledge was simp- not by discovering so much as just looking for it, just being open to the idea that maybe people are doing better than we thought. So we designed research to, to show that or to at least, you know, see if that was possible. And lo and behold, that's what we found from the beginning, really, really from the very first studies. We found that most people were coping really well. Um, so I think it was really those life experiences uh, alerted me to these possibilities. This yeah, is something I, we might see. I feel, I feel I feel exactly the same way, I suppose, in many senses, that straight after college, I went out to the Middle East and I spent 10 years as a freelancer sleeping in trenches wow. and you know moving around with rebels and sleeping in caves. Um, and what you find and what you start to learn is how different people are, but how there is you know, resilience wherever you look. Um, and, and I think that... Yeah. Many people ask me why I got through this relatively well with my injuries and haven't spoken to anyone. And I think it's that. It's about community. It's about meeting other people. It's about yeah. seeing the world. It's about knowing that you put one foot in front of the next and um, and, you, and you can get then. Um, and it's hard to know how, like, you, you could ask yourself, why did you do that? You know, and, and that's tricky because it's hard to really know why. Is it the person you are? Where did that come from? You know, these are... There's a million yeah. other questions. And one of the amazing things that people I've been speaking to on this uh, podcast, uh, you're the first sort of professor I've spoken to about resilience. The, my other guests have been people who have gone through something really difficult um, and have come out the other side and now, you know, inspire others and have gone on and done great things. So it's their resilience. And I, I, I'm looking at their resilience. And you've obviously it, researched many of the fields that I'm speaking to. So, you know, veterans, people in car accidents, um, you know, health. And I wondered if you could talk to me differently about how each one differs. So when you've got trauma from a terrible injury in war or when you've got trauma from uh, a car crash or when you've got trauma from a long-term illness. And I've been trying to track whether there is a common thread or whether it's different for each one, depending on the experience. Yeah, the answer is 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 that both of the things you said are correct. These events are enormously different. You know, um, we've looked at spinal cord injury, for example. Spinal cord injury is 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 a pretty nasty event, right? You have to go through something that's a a, a trauma to your body, severe enough to lesion or sever your spine, and then there's this long period of recovery. That's very different, say, than an assault, which may have no physical or a, 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 a the kind of an assault where there's no physical 
harm, but there's a lot of psychological harm. Then you consider, well, you know, what about the people that were on this airplane the other day where a piece of it flew off in flight, right? Nobody was physically harmed at all, yet they're flying in an airplane with, with a big hole in the side of it, right? So all of those things are different in, in, in dramatically unique ways. All of these events, they present us with extremely unique challenges, every one of these events. And even the same people in the same event will have different challenges, different perceptions of the challenge. And the key for me, the key thread, so there are dramatically different, but there is a key thread running through all of them when we think about resilience. And that gets back to flexibility again. Flexibility is about understanding the challenge in the event. It's about, you know, embracing that challenge and embracing is a maybe too too uh, strong of a word, but, you know, it's confronting it, engaging with the challenge and, and really understanding what the challenge is and what one needs to do to get past it. And that's something that we all are capable of doing. So that's, I think, what unifies the fact that we can be resilient to all these events. And I suppose then that you must be ready to be resilient. I mean, my own experience is that, you know, you don't have to be resilient when you're going to the shop down the road, you know, but, but you, you perhaps need to be prepared. Can you, can you turn on the resilience? You know, yeah. should people be, should people prepare in case something happens or, you know, I, I don't know. Are we resilient yeah. all the time or should we save our resilience for moments that. Well, it's, again, if, if we think about flexibility, we have to have the ability to be flexible. And the, the, I mentioned there were two parts. We have to have the ability to do that, which most people have at least moderate levels of ability in, in being flexible. And then we have to have the other part, which I said was the mindset. We have to be willing to engage with it. You, a great, it's a great metaphor is sports. We have these athletes who may be the best in the world at what they do, but sometimes they don't perform well because they don't have the motivation. You know, they're not paid enough or they're, 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 they're not feeling comfortable with the team or, they're, you know, the coach is not motivated or motivating them properly or, you know, um, you know you, in, in, the, in the UK, if I, I'll use a football example, you have, you have national teams and the national teams are all these brilliant stars that are associated with the country, but they come together as a team and sometimes they don't do so well because they're not motivated. They're not clear about, you know, they're, 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 current, they're maybe more motiv- more concerned with their own performance than the team's performance. So the motivation um, isn't there. And the, these events that we experience, we have to want to deal with it, you know, and most people do, but we still have to want to deal with it. We have to be motivated to do that because it's not fun to when you go through something horrible to think about it, right? We don't want to think about it. We'd rather just wait to, we'd rather just wake up and have it be gone, but we do have to think about it. We have to get into it. We have to figure out how I can get through this challenge. And that's the part I think that um, where the, the work comes in. And that's why we have to do it each time, every time something happens. And as you said, you can, you can be going to the grocery store when the worst thing you've experienced in your life will happen, you know, in an automobile accident or a, who knows what, some hap- some, something happens in the grocery store. So we never know when something highly aversive is going to happen to us. And when it does, then we have to basically dig in and say, okay, um, I, this has been this has changed my life in a really bad way, and I don't want that. I mean, let me do what I need to do to get past it. Yeah, it must be fascinating to be studying resilience because ideally, you want to be with your people you're studying 
as soon as possible after traumatic event. I mean, you want to be able to, you'd like to be with them before the traumatic event. So then you can monitor them throughout. And I wonder what that's like as a, just in terms of your studies, like who are you finding? How do you get there? How does that, how does it work? Well, we do actually get with people sometimes beforehand. We just, there are, there are data, there are studies going on that have nothing to do with some bad thing that's going to happen. But if, if we then collaborate with, with that, that research and say, okay, let's do something afterwards now. Um, we, we do, you know, we scramble. Can you to, describe an example of that? Um, yeah. So let's see. Um, I don't remember when this was now, but there was a, a massive uh, weather event hit New York City a number of years ago. It was called Superstorm Sandy. And it was originally a hurricane. You don't have hurricanes in, in England, but we, we have these things. And this was, was upgraded into a superstorm. And New York City flooded. Downtown New York City was underwater. The subways were flooding and the water levels are rising. And, you know, New York City is a dense island that's not that high above water level, except where I live, luckily. Um, and um, and so and it hit the the state of New Jersey, which borders New York, and you know this whole area was just inundated with a horrific weather event, and um, we wanted to study the impact. So then I I had a colleague in New Jersey who had been collecting data on people for a long period of time and asking lots of interesting questions. We had already been talking about doing some research together, so we 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 put our brains together and then you know added a component that was about this event that just happened, but we had data on the years before and the years after the event. And so we were able to do that. Um, otherwise, we, we just, you know, get on our horses and, and uh, to use a metaphor and, you know, as quickly as we can try to do something. What's that like talking to someone? Say, say you just found someone who has gone through a really traumatic event. What are you trying to learn from them? Are you trying well, to meet? How are you feeling? Like, what are you motivated? Yeah. And that in itself is... The, See, like forward therapy that you're giving them. Well, we we ask, we tell people that we want to know how they're doing psychologically, and we want to to follow them over time. So we 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 tell people that we want to to see how you're doing, and we want to to continue to see how you're doing, you know, at regular intervals over the next couple of years if we can. We also do we we do experiments. We sometimes wire people up with electrodes or put you know electrodes on their scalp and there's salt solution running down their faces we we can ask people to do some somewhat unpleasant things but we also tell people you know we're experts in this area but we want to know more and there's a lot we don't know so we want you to come in and and you know tell us so we we also ask people to simply just tell us what they're going through and um that's most people actually like to tell you tell yeah. us what they're going through and we get enormous amounts of information from that um but you know i think people want to people want to um help the world understand these events too people have been very generous about their time um in in these studies that we do so yeah the, the, do you hope that your studies that your idea of resilience might people learn from it i mean is the end goal to just remind to show everyone that resilience is inside them like did you have a that, initially, that was kind of my goal was to um, to just, well, first, my goal was to discover whether this was true or not. Then once we became pretty confident, it was, was to make this known to the broader world. And actually, oddly, I thought we had achieved that um, a long time ago. After 9-11, it seemed that the world got very interested in trauma. 
um, because of the, the nature of those events. Um, and people were, you know, looking at this, you know, these, these evocative images and wondering how New York and, you know, the broader world would respond. And I think there was a lot of interest in the fact that people were so resilient, but then it slipped away. And that was intriguing to me. And I didn't see that coming. And I don't know exactly why or how that happened. I think a lot of it has to do with the Internet, um, which is sounds like an like a crusty old man saying something. You know, can you explain that? What What is it about? What do you think is the Internet is taking away from people? Well, I think the Internet, I, I, I think the Internet is, is basically a very, very, very wonderful invention. But I think we, we are we are in our early childhood, perhaps adolescence with it. And we need to grow up about it. Um, we, we are victims, we are passive users and often victims of the internet in ways that are detrimental to our health. You know, it's so easy to go online and look at some bad thing that happened and look at an hour later for an update and look at it two hours later for another update. And then in the next day, get up and hear the latest news on these bad things that are happening. And the media sources, you know, they're, they're, they're just doing their job and they're trying to survive in a world, you know, newspapers have given way to online sources and they're all trying to get by. So they have advertising and they want clicks and they want people viewing whatever they post. So the, the news stories are going to be skewed towards how bad things are and the latest and wonder- twist how bad things are. I, I wonder if it also does the internet perhaps make people think more about themselves. Like algorithms f- only feed you things that upset or concern you. Social media is all yeah. about often you, and once you're just thinking about you and the effect of things on you, I, maybe that takes resilience. I would say that takes resilience away. Oh, I think. Well, I think it does make us anxious, and that and the, there's it's no no accident that these levels of self-reported anger and anxiousness and depression and things, these are all on the rise, particularly young, among young people. And, um, you know, I mean, there, it, it's hard to know until we have really good research. We've done some research on, on the internet, on internet use, and we find that people who are doing well in their lives and are basically healthy also use the internet in a way that's fairly healthy. And then when you get into into groups of people who are struggling more, they start doing less healthy things on the internet, like spending way too much time looking at not just the internet, but certain types of of internet. So you find, for example, with people who've been abused or sexually abused, even you find a lot more looking, a lot more violence, violent usage, a lot more pornography, um, a lot less, less educational and entertainment things, you know, and then you find the opposite in healthier people. We don't know much yet about which direction that that goes. Is it which is one causing the other? But I think it's pretty clear, though, that we can, if we're not doing well, we can make ourselves feel pretty bad on the internet. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, you know you thought after nine eleven that there was a real movement. So everyone was understanding, uh, studying resilience, and that's disappeared. My father always used to talk about the great war generation, you know, and the people who had gone through war. And you mentioned earlier about how in World War II, the Brits, they came together in a great way. And I just wonder whether going through something that's traumatic, does it make you, does it it somehow make you stronger? So is it a very twisted system whereby if you're not going through anything that's really difficult, you start to lose and community loses that resilience? Um, That's a good question. I think that, um, I don't think people, I think everybody goes through difficult things. Um, and this, you know, the, these 
because bad things happen and they have randomly and sometimes just completely to anybody, you know, there's a randomness to it and unpredictability to it. Um, so everybody has to go through some difficult things. I don't think necessarily that bad things will, I don't think it's a one-to-one relationship where bad things make us stronger. I think really difficult events, what I call potentially traumatic events can lead to personal growth, but often they don't. I think for, you know, often we get through them. We say, wow, that, that was pretty lousy. And then we move on. Um, we learn things sometimes, you know, we, we, I suppose you could say that makes us stronger. We learn, you know, more about ourselves. But I think when, when these bad things, once we're past them, we tend to put them out of our mind for the most. And that's so just that the way res- things function. Is that, res- is that perhaps a big part of resilience? It's move on. You know, it's, it's an- like, no matter what happened, you, you figure it out. It might feel bad and it's okay to feel bad, but it's the moving on. Yes, we've known this for some time, actually. I don't know about moving on, but we 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 have a, a general bias to see the world in in favorable terms. And and even though it doesn't sound like it when you talk to people, you know, on the street right now, people say the world is, you know, it's apocalyptic. You know, the world is just so crazy right now. But really, though, we go through our days mostly thinking of ourselves in in slightly positive terms and and you know we 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 don't think about the bad things that much and that's where i worry about the internet possibly changing that um but you know it's a, it's sort of human nature to do that so when we've gone through something really aversive we then stop thinking about it you know once we sort of get in the clear look at covid for example covid was all we could think about and it's not entirely gone but yet most people just have forgotten it for the most part you know it's and so we, you know, we don't want, and this is, I think, somewhat of a problem in terms of how we, we, we cope. So one of the things I'm doing in my work now, and I've never done this before, is I'm developing a training for flexibility. And I haven't done this before because I've never really felt like it was the kind of thing I did. I didn't really know how to do that. Um, but I've decided that flexibility, the research shows us that the flexibility, meaning this a capacity to adapt and, and, and you know, dig into challenges and move past them, is really important that often people don't even know how they do that. So one component of flexibility, for example, is choosing a tool from your toolbox. Like, you know, we all have different ways we cope with the world. And a challenge presents us with, you know, we, we, we understand the challenge we're facing and we ask ourselves, well, what's the best way to deal with this challenge? And we can look at the tools we have. When we're highly stressed, when we're in the midst of a difficult situation, it's harder to think. It's harder to do that. So if we kind of do it in advance and think through the tools we have at our disposal, how is it that I cope with the difficulties in the world? We do that, that sort of simple exercise. We have a much better understanding, a much better awareness of the the options we have at our disposal when something bad happens. We'll be back in a moment with Searching for Heroes. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What are the other techniques? Well, the 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 the, the pieces of this are that um, I mentioned the motivational part. Just mm-hmm. feeling like I'm going to get through this really really helps. 
because then it means we embrace it. Then that when we actually attempt to move beyond something, the first thing we do is we call this context sensitivity. And that means we're really focusing on what's happened to us. We have to literally kind of ask ourselves, what is happening right now? What's this situation? How is this different? And what is, what's happening to me? And what, what can I do about it? What do I need to do about it? So maybe something like um, having nightmares or I don't, I'm afraid to go to this one place anymore. Or, um, you know, I don't know how I'm going to face these people or I don't want to be around other people or whatever. I can't get these things off my mind. Whatever the problems we're experiencing, we then have to actually kind of come to terms with that and really just kind of tell ourselves, this is what's happening to me. And what, I, what, what do I want to do about it? What's the challenge? What's the goal here? And the goal is to, you know, sleep better, or the goal is to get this off my mind, or the goal is to feel more comfortable going in these places. And once we have that goal, once we have that sense, then we can think concretely about what tools we have, what are the options I have to do this. And the third part of this is, um, that we actually um, pay attention to, to how we're doing after we've tried to do something and we correct it or try something else if it's not working. And I think this is where people fail the most when they fail at this, because there's an assumption. And I think this comes from this literature on resilience that suggests that some people are resilient and they're just healthy, good, resilient people and other people are not. That's, I think, a really dangerous communication you see in the general world. Um, but what, what, uh, when, when we take a look more broadly that people have these tools, that even the healthiest people have to cope sometimes by trial and error. You know, the healthiest people might try something and it doesn't work, then they try something else. And that's mm -hmm. where we see a lot of people give up. They try something, it doesn't work. You know, I can't sleep at night, I'm having nightmares, I'm gonna try, you know, doing X. I'm gonna try meditating before I go go to bed or, or doing yoga, or I'm going to try, you know, listening to some device I bought online that makes, you know, sounds before I go to bed. It didn't work. I can't cope with this. I don't know what's happening. I, I can't do this. That's where a lot of people give up. And, it, and instead of that, the, the, the flexibility idea and is what we see people who find a way to resilience. This is what they do is they then say, okay, what else can I try? That didn't work. So that's not the right tool here. What else can I try? And that's where we get, that's where the, the action happens. Yeah. I wonder, it's fine that many academics have, uh, you know, they've done lots of studies. They, they have an idea for what might improve life or bring more resilience, for example. But then how do you actually go about teaching that to people? Do you, I mean, are people going to read the list and say, right, I'm going to do these things. Now I can get around it. Or, or is that actually more, that much well, harder than just. That's a great that's a great um, question. And, and I've been asking myself the same question. And, and I decided at one point I tried it first. I created a kind of a workshop training and I did it. And some some people who asked me to do those kind of things. And and I thought it, it went OK, but I don't really know how to do this because this is not what I've ever done in my career. I'm a, basically a scientist and I write and think and do research. So I did a very smart thing. I asked for help from colleagues who know how to do these things. And I enlisted some colleagues who are who know about my work and thought they, they thought it made sense and who are very good at teaching people, very good at working in this format. And we've together created a training and we're now beginning to use it uh, with people. And it involves exercise, it involves explanation, you know, you explain the ideas, uh, some exercises, 
Um, and we also use something called self-talk, which comes from the work of a number of researchers. Ethan Cross uh, came up with some of this work. It has a wonderful book called Chatter, um, which describes this work. Um, and it's self-talk is essentially what we do normally anyway. We talk to ourselves, whether we you know, admit it or not. We talk in our minds or, you know, and we often do it in positive ways, but often negative ways. You know, you, you try to do something, you know, you, uh, I was trying to cook the other day, which is always a dangerous activity for me. And um, I knocked over a bottle of olive oil and it fell on its side and was, you know, I heard the glug, glug, glug of olive oil going between the, between the stove and the cabinet. And, you know, I said to myself, ah, you dummy, you know, and that's, that's self-talk. We just, we condense a whole bunch of thoughts into this one word, you dummy, and it's negative. And then we can also do this in a positive way, but a, a lot of research has gone into this. This is used in sports a lot. It's used in education where instead we, we, we condense positive things that we want to know. So I talk about this in the book, in the end of trauma book, that, um, that we can say to ourselves, for example, like, what's happening? What do I need to do? That's for the context part. We can, we, we can for the, the second part, which I call the repertoire, we can say, what am I able to do? What, what do I have? What tools do I have? We can ask ourselves these questions. We can even, Ethan's research has shown, we can put our own names in it. So I can say, George, what's happening to you? Or George, what are you going to do here, George? And that's actually really effective. It feels a little funny at first to do mm -hmm. that, but it's really effective because you're kind of, it's almost like you're watching yourself or you're talking to yourself. That puts some distance and it's actually easier for people. So, you know, there are lots of tools like this and these tools both help us do this, this kind of thing and it also helps remind us that we can do it. And I like to tell people, you know, we've been learning how to do this since we were children. We learn as children to begin to differentiate how we behave in different situations. You know, our teachers tell us this, our parents tell us this, our siblings, friends, you know, um, when you're in this context, you can't run around and be loud. In this context, you have to be quiet. In this context, you can, you know, you can run freely and do these kind of things. In this context, you're going to have to sit and think and, you know, behave according to certain rules. And we do this our entire lives and we begin to internalize this. It, it's almost automatic. We walk into a situation and we kind of assess, you know, how does one behave here? I, I like yeah. to use the example of the New York subway. I wonder, it raises an interesting question about parenting then. Uh, is that the right way to parent? Should a parent be immediately instilling these rules again and again with it, to their children? Well, some of these rules are absolutely essential. They're part of yeah. civilization. You know, you, you go into this room and, you know, you, you, you go into movie theater with a child and they're, 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 they're laughing or talking really loud. Somebody, if, if the parent doesn't say we can't do that in here, somebody in the, audit, in the movie theater will, right? Will shush the essential the ones. But when it comes to like resilience, I mean, what should a parent, should, uh, what should be going through a parent's mind when they're raising their children? Well, I mean, that's a really great question, and I'm, I'm no expert. I did raise two children in New York, so I somehow survived mm -hmm. that. But, um, you know, I think letting children fail and talking with them about it, I think, is, is one of the best things we can do. Letting them take chances um, without parental guidance sometimes, you know, letting them just try something and, and, and communicating that failure is part of life. You know, not everything goes the way we want them. You know, I don't mean failure in the sense you end up, you know, an alcoholic living on the street, but I mean, 
that you you know you 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 try something and if it doesn't go the way you want it 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 didn't work well that that's how life is and you know what can you learn from that and you know be supportive those are parental tools that have always been part of what we we've we've used i think they're they're in shorter supply now oddly um because um I mean, I was in line one time. I remember going into a museum uh, during COVID. So there's a long line and a young child in the, behind me was kept coming up very close to me and, and bumping into me. And it was during COVID. So I turned around and I asked him if he would stand back a couple of feet. And his mother got very angry with me, like even sort of yelled at me, don't discipline my child. And I was really shocked by that. Like, you know, that's the, the kind of things that, that, that the child needed to know. This is what's going on. This is how you have to behave here. And so I think we can, we can, we can get in the way of that natural event by, being, by over-parenting in a sense. And this is a common thing you see now, actually. Yeah. To close it all up, I wondered if you could just tell me something, all your years, 30 years you've been studying resilience, what... What is the thing that either has surprised you the most? And then I suppose also the thing that you think most people need to know about resilience. Um, Off the top of my head, I would say what has really surprised me, I think, and I think people should know this, is that we can be resilient to anything. Um, We've yet to see an event where we don't see lots of resilience. Um, And I think that's, you know, that's what humans do. We can just get through just about anything. And um, I haven't had a chance to fully test this, you know, with every possible horrible thing on earth, but it's, it's just been so consistent across all of these events. And people need to know this. It's not like, you know, I think that one thing people might think is, well, okay, you can be resilient to those things, but this thing I'm going through, this is really bad and it's ruined my life and I'll never get over it. But I don't think, so I would say no, the possibility is always there for resilience. And what a perfectly optimistic place to finish this uh, chat as well. It's it's in everyone. You know, resilience is in everyone. You just got to work it out and, and, yeah. and makes us all better. So, look, George, thank you so much for joining us. Your book, The End of Trauma, really lays these out so well. I'm so grateful that you came on today. And thanks for spreading the news. Thanks for keeping people resilient and for studying what I think is so important. Uh, thank you, Benjamin. It was lovely to talk with you. Really fun discussion. Well, I have to say that was really enjoyable for me, having spoken to so many people over the last few months who have had to find resilience, have had to get through something really difficult. It's fascinating to speak to someone who has actually been on the other side, who has studied them and uh, in so many different ways. And frankly, I couldn't agree with him more. You know, as he says, resilience is in all of us. That's what we have to recognize first. We mustn't prepare for the worst. We must learn how to find resilience. Um, And it's also really interesting that he uses his own life experiences to get there. Um, What has always interested me, and we raised it with him as well, is how we will influence children. In which direction is society going? In what what role will the internet play as we move forward? And I think think he said it perfectly. There are positives um, in the direction we're moving, and there are negatives. And I think that it's just worth all of us keeping an eye uh, on where we're going. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that today. Uh, Do go and read his book. He lays it out really clearly in that. It's called The End of Trauma. And um, it's uh, it's a slightly different way of thinking to how how so many psychologists tend to think around the world. So again, thank you so much for listening today. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Searching for Heroes. 
Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.